you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. There is no warning rattle at the door, nor heavy feet to storm the fireboards. Safe in the dark prison, I know that light slides over the fingered work of a toothless woman in Pakistan. Happy prints of an invisible time are illuminated. My mouth agape rejects the solid air and lungs hold. The invader takes direction and seeps through the plaster walls. It is at my chamber, entering the keyhole, pushing through the padding of the door. I cannot scream. A bone of fear clogs my throat. It is upon me, it is sunrise with hope its arrogant rider. My mind, formerly quizzent in its snug encasement, is strained to look upon their rapturous visages, to let them enter even into me. I am forced outside myself to mount the light and ride joined with hope. You are listening to A Plagued Journey by Maya Angelou. In this episode of AI Ready Healthcare, I discussed with Professor Lena Meyerhein about her efforts in standardizing biomedical challenges. Welcome to the fourth season of AI Ready Healthcare. I am your host, Anirban. Together with my co-host, Henry, it is a pleasure to welcome our guest for today, Professor Lena Meyerhein. Lena heads the Division of Computer-Assisted Medical Interventions at German Cancer Research Center at Heidelberg, which is a beautiful, beautiful German city. Everybody should visit at some point or other. She also holds a professorship at the University of Heidelberg. Her research interest includes surgical data science and validation of AI methods in healthcare. She won numerous awards, Really, really long list, but a few highlights would include elected Mikai and LSAI Fellow, uh, Heinzmeier Leibniz Prize, uh, ERC Starting, as well as Consolidator Grants. So yeah, we are really looking forward to an engaging conversation on the AI validation research that Lena's group is currently doing. Welcome to the podcast, Lena. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I think this podcast is really a great idea. So yeah, thanks a lot for the invitation. Yeah, it's really our pleasure to have you today here on our podcast, Lena. So 
Maybe let's just start with the very first question, which is also our kind of tradition in this podcast that we have here, which is about the becoming. So yeah, can you please tell us a bit about how your way through to research and through research has been happening and how you ended in the current position that you currently are as a professor and group leader? Sure. Well, so let's start with the education. I went to high school and Hamburg and Florida, actually. And then I went to Kaltrö, now called KIT, to study computer science. And in my first semester, I remember I heard about this research on implanting microchips such that handicapped people could grasp again. And I was so fascinated by this that at that time, I decided to apply computer science and medicine somehow. And so then that I did my studies abroad at Imperial College London, where I specialized in computer vision and machine learning. And then I came back to get credit for my year abroad. So the Germans may know that uh, yeah, in a lot of universities, we have um, specialization subjects, Vertiefungsfächer. So I had cognitive systems and knowledge-based systems. And yeah, I just wanted to get credit for what I had done abroad in that year. But it turned out to, to be different. So I went up to Professor Weibel, who is a famous machine learning researcher. And he didn't give me that credit because I had not come up to him before I left. And instead, I worked, walked out with a job contract as a research assistant. So in fact, he had just purchased this yeah, electrode cap, so a cap with electrodes that would enable you to measure EEG signals. And he just wanted to investigate what one could do with it. And I, I liked that idea of getting a little bit into research. But then, yeah, basically I had started working on this and then he one, in a, one day he came into the room and he said, okay, why don't we put the electrodes in the face and try to recognize speech? And I think my first thought was that I, I was a little bit annoyed because <laughs> he's a famous speech recognizer, basically working in NLP and he wants to make every problem a speech recognition problem. But okay, I mean, he was my boss anyway. And so I, I set everything up. Of course, we need other equipment for this. But then I ended up doing my master's thesis on speech recognition using muscle signals. And the idea, basically my boss's idea, was that, for example, you could sit in a meeting and then have a phone call without actually uttering a sound. And my idea, my motivation was more for maybe helping disabled people. So that was my motivation for this project. So this was very exciting and also resulted in my first, first author publication. And Yeah, by that time, I really was very certain that I wanted to stay in research and I wanted to do a PhD, but I was also certain that I really wanted to do it in healthcare and, for example, not stay in the lab, not, not because it wasn't good. I was, it was a great lab and many thanks <laughs> at this point to Professor Weibel for yeah, paving the way for research. Also, uh, my supervisors, Tanya and Florian. But yeah, I wanted to really be at a, at a healthcare institution. So I explored some options. One of them was at the German Cancer Research Center, where they had set up this search training group, Intelligent Surgery, which, which sounded quite exciting. So I went up to my future PhD advisor and I said, I would like to apply machine learning in, in medicine, basically, quite broadly, not necessarily in imaging. And he actually told me it was the stupidest idea he had ever heard, literally. And he said, yeah, he's been there. It will never work. And I was... Yeah, I guess naive enough to believe him at that time. So I did a little detour. I'm doing my PhD in 
yeah, more classical model-based research, image guidance, actually. And, and this was also very exciting for me, maybe not reflecting my core passion because I had specialized in AI, but it was really, really also exciting and taught me a lot in terms of, you know, what's really going on in interventional settings, a lot of practical issues that I learned. But what bothered me was this, yeah, let's say traditional approach that I had taken to do image fusion, which was based on offline images, right? So you, if you want to do guidance, you typically take some image that was taken prior to the intervention, and then you try to fuse it with the current anatomy. And of course, this is an exciting problem, but it has some, yeah, say, bottlenecks. One is that you cannot monitor dynamics. So for example, perfusions plays a major role in surgery, and you cannot monitor dynamics based on offline information, obviously. But also, there's some information that you don't necessarily see on your preoperative images, or they have changed, right? So at that time, yeah, that kind of frustrated me. And I got really excited about this idea of biophotonics, which is yeah, a field that deals with the interaction between light and tissue. So specifically, spectral imaging techniques I find really exciting that leverage the way that light interacts with tissue to reveal important tissue properties, such as the tissue oxygenation. So I did my postdoc with Dan Elson at the Hemlin Center for Robotic Surgery. I became pregnant, so I had to leave it a bit early, but it gave me the idea for my ERC starting grant. So th this was all happening in 2012. So it gave me the idea for my ERC starting grant in which I wanted to combine machine learning with biophotonics techniques in endoscopy. So I perceived all the different fields, machine learning, biophotonics, et cetera, to be quite disjunct. And I wanted to, you know, merge these fields and get the best out of the all the worlds. And yeah, and this was successfully, and I, I guess it kind of also paved the way for me to get then a full professorship at the German Cancer Research Center in 2016. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks so much for the... I guess, concise summary of a rather eventful career. And it was really fun to hear from you that how quite early on you were into machine learning, but maybe machine learning for healthcare was not that yet ready, but now it is and you are all in. So that's, that's <laughs> quite nice. But I guess one thing I, it's a little bit curious for me was that it seems like a significant part of your training, of course, somewhat by coincidence, also somewhat by your choice is about surgery. And I basically identified yourself early on as a surgical data science, computer assisted intervention direction of researcher. But you are also building this, I would say, rather completely separate direction of validating the results of the challenges and what sort of metrics people should bring in which is absolutely also fascinating. And it's a really, really important work. But how did you sort of transition to this field and how did it actually happen? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I also asked to myself. So I, I guess one of my biggest weaknesses is that I get excited quite easily about things. So, so I always try to, to tell myself I need to keep focus. But yeah, how did it happen? It happened actually in 2015 because I was challenges chair in that year. And here I have to give credit to Nasir Nawab, 
who yeah organized this position for me, which was yeah for me a big thing at that time as an early career researcher. And he said, Lena, make sure there's a Kai challenge this year because we only have MIG challenges. So MIG, medical image computing, focusing on radiology, pathology, and, and Kai, the computer-assisted interventions, for those who are not familiar. And yeah, Kai challenge is tricky because a lot of the Kai research also deals with hardware. So I was thinking, okay, it's not feasible that people bring their systems to, to a conference. So we have to find challenges that can be conducted more easily. And then I thought of this whole field of endoscopic vision in which I was already also involved. And I contacted Steffi Speidel and then Stoyanov. And I asked them whether we, they would be interested in organizing such a Kai challenge in the field of endoscopic vision. And we were a bit concerned that the community is so small that we wouldn't attract enough attention. So what we did then was to say, okay, let's make it a community event. So it's not so much about the competition, but more about bringing the community together and let's try to cover several topics. And because we don't have all the data that could be interesting, let's make a call for data and ask people basically around the world whether they want to participate, whether they have data they want to share for such a challenge. And this is how it started. And it went well in the sense that we actually got I think 10 applications for data, which for us was surprising. We didn't even know whether we would get any. Yeah, and so, so we ended up also organizing our own challenge. And then I guess I learned from my own failures. So I realized that when we defined the metrics, the rankings, et cetera, for the challenges, our design choices were maybe a bit ad hoc. So I'm um, seemed almost arbitrary to me sometimes. So why, why, for example, when we aggregate uh, test cases, why do we use the mean and not the median or vice versa? Or, I mean, why do we first aggregate basically all the, why, 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 why do we first compute all the metric values, aggregate them and then compute the rank? We could as well compute a rank per image and then aggregate the ranks. So there were so many decisions to be made. And my, my perception about myself was that we took them or ourselves was we didn't really know what was best. And then we, we ended up doing something. And this then uh, triggered me because I thought if this happens to me and I always try to do things carefully, then it probably happens to others as well. And then I remember going up to Matthias Eisenmann, who's still working with us and who contributed so much to the challenges. And I, I said, do you want to quickly, I said quickly, have a look into this? Because I think from, from all what I've seen now, I think maybe the rankings that we have, maybe the winner is not really the best, the winner of a challenge. And this is, yeah, how it all started, because then we found several disturbing things, I guess, in the literature. And then we decided to really go into this in depth. And I remember that my goal was to get basically all the challenges data from the year 2015 at that time. And I, I didn't know at first how to do it because basically what, what, what I was thinking was that there's a lot of flaws in the literature and people don't really like working on flaws so much. So then what I did, I first went up to the people that I knew that would be in because yeah, that, that, that's how they are. And then when I had already a critical mass, I could then say to all others, well, so far, everybody I asked uh, is committed. And we ended up getting 100% of the challenges in, which was totally great. Uh, and yeah, I really want to thank all the contributors. 
because then that gave us a really great database. So we had all, we had really a lot of experimental data. We also analyzed all the challenges that had been conducted up to that point, meaning we went at least to observers through all the papers, through all the material available and really captured all the information in a structured manner. Yeah, and that for me was really revealing in many ways. So, I mean, I, I guess I cannot summarize the whole paper here, but in, in a nutshell, what we found was that the reporting is, is incomplete. So a lot of relevant information is not provided. The design is extremely heterogeneous and the rankings are not stable. And yeah, I guess then I thought, okay, this, I mean, this is relevant for my community, for surgical data science and goes even beyond. So I guess this is something where we can really make a difference and, and really create some impact on the field. And this is why I then decided to invest yeah, quite some resources in. So this is how it started. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually a very nice story about learning from eventual failure and really making the best out of those lessons learned. So you wrote several papers about measuring challenge performance and metrics to measure challenge performance. And we will put the link to all of those papers in the description of today's episode as well. And those papers are also available for free on the internet, which is also great because then it's very easy to access and accessible to anyone who maybe wants to host a challenge or participate in a challenge themselves. So yeah, it's a very nice effort that you made documenting all of this and formalizing this in an accessible way. So my question is, if you could maybe give us the three major takeaways of those papers describing the best practices for and potential failures in challenges and mm -hmm. leaderboards. Do you want me to summarize only those insights that are already out there or also talk a little bit about current activities so far unpublished, but in the, in the pipeline. That would be great. Of course, as you wish. <laughs> okay. May maybe I'll start with the first question. So yeah, the first part, which refers to the already published papers. So yeah, one thing I, I guess I already mentioned was that, that we found the reporting on validation to be incomplete. And the measure that we took there was to develop in an international consortium. I, I really have to mention this here explicitly because there's so many relevant people involved, right? I mean, I, I cannot name them all, but in terms of the consortia, there's the Mikai board working group, which has now been transformed into a Mikai special interest group on challenges with all my great colleagues. Then there's now also the Monai benchmarking groups with the people involved and recently the, the HIP platform. I know this is maybe a little bit annoying for, for, for people who listen, but I really want to give credit to people who are contributing. So this is really on behalf of a really large consortium. So we developed this bias statement for transparent reporting and also implemented the statement as a tool, a framework basically for yeah, description of your challenge design to have a better review process on challenges. And I mean, I'm sure there's a lot that can be improved further, but I'm, I'm quite happy that we, we reached this state. So for example, in medical image analysis, now when somebody wants to submit a challenge paper, they have to fill out that bias statement, that checklist. And I think it's helpful because it really yeah, forces people to report on all the different aspects and also why they took several design choices. And I think that's also helpful for the, for the reviewer. 
And I, I really want to get away from this. I don't know. I don't really want to have that image of quality control in that, you know, bureaucratic German sense. I just really think that currently the validation studies that we do are not meaningful enough. I mean, we want to bring machine learning to the patient. But in order to do this, I think we really need to validate properly. And what I'm trying to do and what we are trying to do is really to pave the way for that by several measures. And it's not meant as an, you know, bureaucratic to it. It's really, it's really meant to be helpful. So second takeaway was that the rankings are unstable. So to give you an example, we had many challenges, but we had one challenge where we would take away one test case from the test set and then the worst performing team became the best. I mean, this is clearly evidence for unstable ranking. So to overcome this, we developed a toolkit. It's currently called Challenger, but we're in the process of moving to Python and then it, it will be called Wizard and also provide a yeah, web-based platform. So this toolkit basically enables you to do validation, comparative analysis in the presence of uncertainties. And it can be used for challenges, but also you know, for, for any research really where you want to compare methods. We use it quite a lot internally by now. Yeah, so that was the second step. Then from a large survey that we did, we learned that, and I would agree to this, that the community perceives the lack of standardization, especially with respect to metrics, as a major issue. And I think that's totally that's totally the case. Maybe we can talk about it in a second. And this is why basically most of my time my, my say free research time where I actually do hands-on work is dedicated to this. And then also we showed that there's security holes in the way challenges are currently conducted. So for example, the security hole would be not working with Docker containers, but releasing the test set instead, because that can have several consequences in terms of cheating on the side of the participants, but also there can be cheating uh, by the organizers, if they don't make the rankings transparent before the challenge takes place, then, you know, you can kind of tune the rankings. So this is the paper that uh, Annika Reinke published at Mika in 2018, if you're interested. So, yeah, a lot of insights. Also, more recently, we found that basically, if you look at the way challenges are currently organized and analyzed, then the results focus on say, performance statistics. So you get a winner and you get a distribution of metric scores, but you can wonder what you actually learned about the problem. So for example, in which cases did the algorithms fail? I mean, some people offer a, say, qualitative analysis, but I can, again, say from my own experience that there you have the problem that maybe if you don't do this systematically, you have a confirmation bias. So you think something is the case and then you look for an image that fits your hypothesis and then you present it, but you can actually be wrong. It just happened to me. So that I think is a problem. We need to learn more about the actual problem and what needs to be done by the community to address the problems that are remaining. And then also on the other side, basically why is the winner the best? I mean, say we have a stable ranking and then we have a winning algorithm, then what actually made this algorithm win? Because we know from current research and in unit, for example, that it's often not the architecture that is the deciding factor. 
So we're trying to look into, into this specifically. Yeah, so not sure if I forgot something, but at least it gave you it gave you some insights on what we found and what we're trying to do against. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was, this was really a thorough insight into the amount of work that you have been doing and how sort of multidisciplinary the actual work needs to be. So I guess I have sort of one question around the fact that what you men mentioned about the metrics and the quality of metrics. Maybe if you can elaborate that a little bit. And the second question is a sort of direct follow-up to the last thing you mentioned about the challenge winners. So imagine I somehow ended up participating in a challenge and winning it in, in this Mikai. What would that mean necessarily? Like what does that mean in terms of the impact to the community, in terms of impact to the problem? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, maybe first the metrics. Yeah, so we actually spent maybe the past two years looking into the subject a bit deeper, and we found problems with respect to metrics in three categories. So one is the most classical. So it's the actual, say, mathematical properties of metrics. So maybe let me take the dice because it's the most widely used metric, dice similarity coefficient which is very closely related to IOU. There, for example, if you have very small structures to segment, that metric is really in instable, right? So a single pixel difference can have a huge impact on the metric value. So the dice is between zero and one. And if you have a small structure, you can easily get from 0.6 to 0.8 by changing the value for one single pixel. And of course, this is alarming given inter-rater variability and also non-determinism of AI, for example. So that's on the side of the mathematical properties. We identified many, many problems there. I think, yeah, in our update, I think, which we will release hopefully this month, I think we have around 50 new images illustrating pitfalls in segmentation, detection, and classification. So there's a lot in this category, but then there's also a category that is, I think, specifically relevant in medicine, probably, which is, yeah, we call it the problem category mismatch. So in terms of terminology, problem is always basically the driving biomedical question. Category is the image processing task. So specifically, we're looking now into semantic segmentation, instance segmentation, object detection, and image level classification. Why these four? Because they're very closely related mathematically. So you can think of them as classification at different scales, right? So image level classification is classification at image level, naturally. Then you have segmentation, which is basically classification at pixel level. And the object detection would be in between, basically, classification at um, object level. I mean, it's not that clear, but if you look at the metrics and you try to put them in one mathematical framework, you see that at the center of most of the metrics uh, is the confusion matrix. So they're very closely related processing categories, but with the metrics, you have to be really careful. And I think my, my favorite example, it's actually quite common, is the use of a segmentation metric for an actual detection problem. So if you have an image and say you want to, you actually want to detect lesions, I already say detect because that's often the case. So you, you want to know your lesions in the image. Then if you take the dice, for example, as a metric for that image, 
then you don't have an explicit punishment of the fact that you may miss certain lesions, right? So there may, may be, for example, one huge lesion and two small lesions, and then an algorithm that gets the large lesion totally right and misses the other two may have a much better metric value compared to an algorithm that actually gets all three of them, but the big one maybe not with very high accuracy. And we, we observe such problems actually quite a lot. So this would be the problem category mismatch. And then the third is related to aggregation. And I think this is an extremely underestimated problem by the community. So, you know, I think most people, when they report results, they assume that all the test cases are independent, which clearly they are not in many, many cases. So if you have, for example, video frames from different video images, and clearly there can be a high correlation between frames from one specific video. So statistically speaking, that you shouldn't just put everything in one pot, basically, but you should do a hierarchical aggregation. First, aggregating per video, then maybe aggregating per, per hospital site, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that is a category that, yeah, that is quite important and overlooked. So first step was to identify these three categories of failures. Do you have a question up to this point? No, that's fine. Totally, okay. go ahead. Okay. Because I'm talking so long. Okay, so we have these three categories. And then the next question was, how do we, I mean, how do we address the problems that we have? So I think the first step was not that complex. So we propose basically a mapping which comes from the biomedical interest. So what are you really interested in in the end and gives you the appropriate image processing category, like in this case, the four that I mentioned, image level classification, object detection, semantic and instant segmentation. But then it gets quite tricky. And I, I really underestimated, yeah, what, what are the things that need to be taken into account? So what we did in this larger consortium, I think we have more than 50 institutes involved now and also you know, stakeholders from, of course, researchers like us, but also from industry, Google, uh, NVIDIA, but also uh, societies like RSNA, uh, ACR, et cetera, you know, quite heterogeneous consortium. And yeah, we, we, we then looked into the question, I mean, what are the properties of a problem that cause the problems? And that led us to the idea, and I guess this is, yeah, but, so this is unpublished. <laughs> I cannot say confidential in a podcast, it doesn't make sense. But I mean, we will, we will release that first draft of a paper, yeah, hopefully in the, in the next two months. So we, we basically capture the characteristics of a problem in a fingerprint, a problem fingerprint. And this captures domain interest. So for example, different classes in a problem may not be equally important. You can, you can basically specify this. We have things like test set or, or data set related properties. This would be, for example, the size of structures relative to the grid size or the variability of structure sizes, things like that. I mean, things like related, I guess, to the target structures and so on. So this gives us a, yeah, a whole list of properties with which you can describe your problem. And then we do a mapping from, from these characteristics to the actual metric. 
And I can already say it's it's not as easy as it may sound, but it's also not, I mean, we don't want to enforce rules. We want to, I guess, educate people what is important in which step. I think this is particularly interesting also in the in detection problems because you have to make so many choices, right? So in detection, you have to decide, I mean, what is your localization criteria and how do you say an object was localized? You have to do assignments between references and your own localizations. You have to choose the extra metrics. So it's, it's a very complex process and we want to guide basically people through this process. And to make it a bit easier, we're in the process also of developing a tool that that basically captures all this. So that's a little bit more user-friendly, I guess. And yeah, I, I hope the, the community will participate. So the current the current strategy would actually be to, to tweet the, the concept before we even give it into peer review. So this was this was discussed with a nature methods editor actually. So I asked her whether this would be in scope that we get feedback before we actually pass the paper into peer review. We have a positive pre-submission request. And she said yes, which is great. So now we will basically tweet, see if we can get community feedback. Of course, if somebody gives substantial feedback, then they will be included as co-author or otherwise an acknowledgement section. And then we can revise our concept. And then with this revision, basically go into peer review. That's, that's how we imagine it. Mm, that sounds like a very promising, very promising direction. Uh, actually, I'm really looking forward to this. Also, I wish you all the best for for the reviewing process. So maybe talking about the current state of things in uh, Mikai challenges uh, specifically. Mm -hmm. So what sorts of adjustments were made to the challenge policies? I mean, you you emphasize that you are not really a fan of regulating things too much, but maybe what sort of policies currently exist and how do they relate to your findings? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I have to mention maybe that I was voted into the Mikai board now four or five years ago. And I, I really came to the board with that mission of bringing challenges to the next level. And of course, I mean, there's still a lot to improve, but I think we have actually taken some steps. And one of the things that was an easy gain was to improve the review process. So from my point of view, a challenge on average, probably has more impact compared to a research paper. But we we are very strict with the review process for papers, but challenges was more like, yeah, you, you submitted something, but it wasn't really peer-reviewed like a paper. And this is something that we changed based on the bias statement. And I think it makes a lot of sense because, you know, just by, yeah, forcing in this way people to write down the different design choices, you also force them to, say, to, to, to re reflect on them, right? So if you just submit a, a one-pager in arbitrary format, you may leave out, I don't know, which metrics you actually use or, or, or things like this. But if you have the explicit question, which metrics do you use? How do they relate to the goal of the challenge? And why did you pick them? Then, you know, it gets you thinking, maybe you do end up making making a change to them. So, so this was one step. And then we realized that <laughs> this was a, this was a, a bit sad. So we, we did all this and we were happy that we received all the information back in 2018. And then we looked at the challenge websites and we realized that basically people had still not really made the rankings explicit, not very transparent challenge design. And they changed the design afterwards. 
And this was a bit disappointing. And then we thought, okay, we don't have the power to control everything, but maybe let's put something like an indirect quality control also to prevent organizers, for example, for, from tuning rankings. So let's, let's set up the infrastructure in a way that once a challenge is accepted, we export the PDF from our tool and then it's put online. So at least if people make changes to their challenge, they have to report this online. And if they don't, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, it, I guess it falls back on them. So I think this was, this was one thing. Yeah. So I think this is what we have primarily done from the Mika side. And now the next steps would be yeah, not enforcing metrics, but I guess educating people more on, on, on the metrics, providing those tools, because we think that this is, yeah, really key to validation to choose the right metrics. And I just realized that I missed to answer Aniba's question before. You asked, I think, what it means for a researcher to, to win the Mika challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think it means a lot. I mean, you, you get a lot of attention, not only from research, also from industry, of course, also depending on the challenge. You may get a monetary award. You can put this down on your CV, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess this is also a reason why some people participate. And that in turn causes problem because, I mean, if you want to go towards collaborative challenges to really solve a problem, then maybe you're missing the incentives that such a competitive challenges would give researchers, but that on the side. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lena, for, yeah, I didn't want to mention that because you were on the flow and yeah, <laughs> but that's really was one of the thing I was thinking about that what it really means to win a challenge these days, but yeah, I totally understand. Going back, one of the things that you mentioned, I guess, several times, so it's about really bringing, making this big consortia and bringing people from many different, let's say, walks of life, uh, stakeholders, uh, put it that way, to really make a sort of consensus about how challenges should be evaluated, what these leaderboards should look like. When it comes to, let's say, the next part, where you are actually, based on this knowledge, you are making certain policy decisions about how the Mikai Challenge will be organized in the coming years and how the landscape of that will look different. Are you bringing any policy researchers to actually measure the overall cost-benefit ratio behind these decisions? I mean, that's, that's very tricky. We, we have actually discussed uh, a related question. I mean, how do you even measure the impact of a challenge itself, right? I mean, now you, you go even further. It's even more tricky. How do you, how do you measure the benefit of a specific action? It's related. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer to this yet. I mean, how do you measure success in general, right? It's a very, very tricky question almost everywhere. Yeah, I, I don't have a good answer. I, I hope that by doing this, I mean, by really paving the way for good validation, that this will actually pave the way for clinical translation. So, I mean, causality then is still... Uh, it's hard to grasp, right? What caused the success if we actually end up translating more to the patients? But I hope that these steps will help in this. And maybe one thing that was interesting why several societies are keen on working with us on this is actually also related to translation. So the hope is that by standardizing evaluation processes, 
this could maybe help in faster translation in terms of certification, for example. So if not everybody does their own thing and justifies it, but we have some standards, then this could really help out help also to speed up the bureaucracy. Yeah, that actually makes definite sense that if you are really by design more thorough about your entire challenge and how you want to organize, how you want to evaluate, that might actually help later when you have actually a working solution to bring that to the market. I sort of was also thinking because this is a very interesting direction for me to think about is the policy and how policy impacts in a complex system. One of the thing I was thinking about is I think in last year when we were actually submitting for one of the challenges, which finally got through. So that was awesome. But the amount of, uh, let's say, the form fill up per se, the bureaucracy you said, it, it was quite extensive. Now, that's really great for, let's say, for someone who is sitting in Germany and we were organizing with another group from Germany. So we were quite resource intensive. So we don't have much problem. We can do all these. But if you are thinking about it, one of the goal of the challenges is to bring in diverse data sets into the framework because finally your deep learning is as good as the diversity of the data so from a pragmatic perspective the more diverse data sets we get the better models we get but more importantly we can also argue is that if we are talking about diversity as an inclusion of mikai values rising the standards are we sort of risking the fact that those who are not really as resource intensive as Germany might be left out. So have you thought of this this sort of dichotomy? Yeah, I mean, you're raising an important point, and I think we really need to get much more diverse. I love the fact that Mikhail goes to Africa. <laughs> no, that, that is certainly important. On the other hand, I have to say that I have a general problem with the way research is organized, because let's say the quantity versus quality, I don't like the balance too much. So for example, if I look at my own research papers, my group has grown, but I publish less because I think we should all put more time into single papers because it's impossible to read all the papers out there. And I think we we don't spend enough time to really make individual papers good enough. I would really prefer just a fraction of the papers, but them thought through thoroughly. And there's a lot of reasons why this has not happened. A lot of pressure on students to get, you know, many publications and all that. But I don't think it's right, right? And also this this focus on first and last author. I mean, I do it myself. When I'm first or last author, I spent more time compared to being a co-author. But isn't isn't it cool? I don't know, the, the Higgs particle discovery with 3,000 authors. I kind of find this cool. I mean, you really moving something together regardless of who who did the most and then not, you know, just because I'm a co-author, I shouldn't spend less time. I mean, I should really critically work on the paper as if it was my first author paper. So I think that's going wrong in general. And when, when it comes to challenges, I really think, I mean, challenges have so much impact and we shouldn't, I just don't think we should sacrifice quality. And from my perspective, I mean, filling out that form shouldn't block someone from participating in a challenge. That being said, there may be a practical problem, but maybe rather than taking such measures away, we can find other means to bring in the community, right? So for example, 
maybe we can offer support to do this properly and fill the resource problem. So I think we have to be creative about it. And definitely there is a gap and we need to fix it and bring in yeah, diversity. But I don't think we should sacrifice quality for it. Yeah, that's a great point you are making that when we know for sure there is a problem, there is absolutely no reason to sidestep that problem, right? So we should face it head on. And then we see actually what the problem is and try to bring our resources into it, especially as you mentioned, like the challenges have a much bigger impact than individual papers. So we should make sure that they belong to a high standard. But now, yeah, sorry, now that you mentioned it, maybe that's actually a good suggestion because, I mean, maybe we can find a way to to offer support for the challenge design, especially for certain underrepresented areas. I don't know how to do this politically correctly, but I think maybe we could think about it. I, I will I put this on my to-do list to think about it. Thanks. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. I actually think uh, the topic of limited resources is now... Looking at our time frame, the perfect point to connect to our last and final question, which is also a sort of tradition in our podcast, which is in a perfect world without any interruption and with unlimited resources, what would be the major question you would be investigating as a researcher? Yeah, so I actually thought about this question before. I think it's not a trivial one given the complex setting that we have specifically in surgical data science. But if I had to pick one thing, I would say generalization. I would want to focus on the topic of generalization because now, you know, I really want to bring our methods to the patient. And I think we've shown enough in research papers that we can get great performance on limited data all taken from one hospital or whatever. But if we want to generalize, there's much more needed and it's needed both. In the machine learning methods, we haven't talked about this today, but there's, of course, a lot, a lot to do on that end. And on the validation methodology, which we, we covered a little bit today. And yeah, I guess I, I'm a little bit lucky because on the machine learning part, I, I have the luxury of yeah having a ERC consolidator grant on this topic. So I have not unlimited time and money, but at least 2 million euros from the ERC. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this research. Yeah, that's wonderful. And congratulations again for your win. That's really a big money and that we all know such resources are like almost create a new direction yeah. uh, quite often. So yeah, all the best in bringing all the machine learning methods that you are developing for surgeons actually into the operating room. We have already seen some of it has started happening in Strasbourg. So maybe in Heidelberg soon enough. So all the best for that wonderful future, Lena. Thank you so much. Yeah, and it was really a wonderful time we had here with you. So I again, thank you for all the effort you are putting in. I can't really know for sure how many sleepless nights you guys put together as a team to make the challenges much more a higher standard than it actually when it started. But I'm sure there are many more sleepless nights ahead, but it's all for the good reason. So yeah, to all that, all the best. Thank you very much. And yeah, and as I said, the credit really goes to the whole team. It's impossible to work on this alone. Thank you very much for having me and also for organizing this podcast. I really think it's a great idea. Thank you and have a nice day. Bye-bye.